Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I am Jared Femblow. Ooh, we, I feel like we shook that one up a little bit. It's, Liked it. Yeah, we gotta. It's, you know, keep everybody on their toes, really. Yes. Keep it moving, keep it fresh, keep it new. Yeah. Keep it vibrant. You gotta keep it spicy. Keep it vibrant. Mm-hmm. I love that. Gotta mm-hmm. sometimes the inflection, a little inflection is all you need to like give it a little pizzazz. Right, or like put putting the emphasis on a different syllable. <laughs> That's, that could be fun. Yeah. How are you, Jared? Give me something good. Give me some good news. Give me something okay. fun. I will. Flirty. Okay. I voted today. <gasps> you voted? Well, congrats. Did you get your sticker? I did. California um, mails out like an I voted sticker with the ballot. So I, you have it right away. But we have that. our like like a state election. There was like a million positions open mm-hmm. coming up on, on June 7th. So this will be before this june 7th will be before this episode goes out right but so we have but did you actually vote today day of recording you voted day of recording i went and dropped okay. off my ballot in our little secure voting oh. box and and i did my due diligence you did your civic duty for the california primaries absolutely just a little reminder that you know vote vote in your local and you know statewide elections and use use your voice you know your vote counts so 2022 make sure you vote if you're in the u.s and have an election coming up or if you're outside the u.s vote wherever you are yeah if you can vote um do it yeah. voting is um should be a right it is a privilege to be able to vote mm-hmm. so exercise that privilege when you get a chance yeah we love that and i'm I'm, really happy happy. with my choices so i feel good you know i'm happy for you do you do like research on each person or is it just like d voted yeah i just i'm sorry i'm assuming who you're voting for (laughs) no i i do research on all of the candidates you know like rule of thumb i just try to kind of vote as liberal as possible uh that's just my method so you know i skip (laughs) anybody that says republican which makes it really easy i whittle that the bad boy down and then i go into each person and like make my choice from there but there were some there were some positions and i'm like i literally don't even know what this position is so I'll, i'll i don't know what you do i'll be swayed by you know some of the endorsements and people I trust you know voicing opinions and so I I listen to them and I feel fine I feel comfortable with the choices that I made but I dropped it off and you know now I don't have to think about it for a while and you know I can feel good about myself I'm happy for you that was good news I appreciate that thank you now you you tell me some horrible news let's just like we I brought it real high and now just crash it bring it real down low I'm going to be 24 years old and have to go to an orthopedic surgeon because my body is falling apart. How's oh, that? Is that, that good? Is, yeah, that's sad. That's good. Okay, I wanted to like find the level between like trauma dumping mm-hmm. and like just kind of general sucky news. So what what's happening? Your body's falling apart? Do you care to talk about know. it? We don't have to talk about it. Oh, no, I don't mind talking about it. I just don't, don't have many answers. I because just have you to, have like, yet to go. Yeah, I think I have just had um pretty 
like not a chronic, but a regular, some kind of muscle strain. Mm -hmm. And then I ran a 5k. I ran two 5Ks, which I don't I don't run. Yeah, I'm a cool athlete girl mm-hmm. now. And then I really committed to that choice because I went on vacation and I walked a lot in sandals, obviously, because I'm Ew. so smart. Walked a lot in sandals. Then for my birthday this summer, I was mm-hmm. like, I really want to train to do, you know, like a bigger, a bigger race. And so a full I, marathon. I want to do like a mini triathlon is my goal. Okay. But as I started kind of considering that and sort of re after I took a break a little bit Mm -hmm. from my newfound athleticism (laughs) I realized after vacation I'm like I think I exacerbated something existing so I went to the doctor they were like yeah that's super abnormal Mm -hmm. you need to like go get checked out and I was like sick okay but you're catching that that. so before it develops into anything worse and when I wake up tomorrow and want a new hobby from being a sporty girl Mm -hmm. um because you know that's kind of how I do things yeah I have an excuse now which is maybe I need a new hip (laughs) yeah yeah I love doing that though when you're like kind of hurt whatever and you're like oh if only I wasn't hurt today would be the day I would go run 14 miles yeah you know it's nice having kind of like I just a, can't. Yeah. Right. Like I, if I could, I would. So I have like a sort of legit reason. I mean, I'm like very, I'm really functioning. So it's not mm-hmm. the best reason. But if I decide to like go back on that and, and I have like, oh, I could be injured. So. Right. Okay. That's good. It's a fallback. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. Um, Actually, it's kind of nice to have somebody be like, yeah, weird that you're in pain so much. Yeah. You know, I feel like you and I talk about that sometimes too of like this weird thing hurts and I feel like it shouldn't, but everybody's like, yeah, that's fine. Right. So yeah, I loved having a doctor be like, ooh, that's weird. <laughs> that like, shouldn't be what's, what's up with that? So I love t- people telling me with degrees that I'm like quirky and abnormal. Mm-hmm. Really validates me. Okay, better than like so, WebMD yeah. though. You that's know. true because, yeah. You're, so you're that's looking, what I mean. I like. You're looking in all the right places, all the right sources. Right. I went to the, when I went to the doctor too, they were like, well, you haven't been to the doctor in a while. I was like, well, you go to the doctor when something's wrong. Like, right. Like, I'm not really, I'm like past the age of physicals. And they were like, no, you should still be getting regular physicals. And I was like, well, no Ugh. one told me that. Who has the time or the willpower? Yeah. Or the like money. Like you want yeah. $15 from me? Wrong. You right. cannot have my money. Right. You can't have any of it. Because you could spend that $15 on like anything else. Anything else. Anything, Anything that would make you happy. My little treats for myself are Juicy Drop Pops. So I could get so many of those. So many Juicy Drop Pops. Yeah, what is your little treat for yourself? Like you go to Target and you do like regular shopping and then you need a little treat. Like what's mm-hmm. your little treat? Mm-hmm. Um, God, everything that I want to say is going to make me sound 400 years old. Well, it's too late. Here we go. I really love getting... It's it's chocolate with marzipan in the middle, and I've talked about marzipan. Freaking marzipan again! (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god! I still don't know what it it is. It's it's so good. I swear it it just like changes everything for me. It really or ooh or a popum. You know those little. Oh, I love a popum. I love a popum. I can eat a whole box in one night. They're great. Yeah. Get get yourself a popum. Get Mm -hmm. yourself. Whatever marzipan is, I still don't know. And get yourself a juicy drop pop. Treat and, yourself. And get folks. cozy because we're about to tell you some really fun stories. 
Wasn't that smooth? Yeah, there you go. I love that transition. Well, Not planned. No, not planned at all. None of this is ever, except our (laughs) stories that we're about about to tell. But- so usually in our schedule, I would go first this week, mm-hmm. but I I know who your topic is. And then I was doing research on my topic and it only makes sense if you go first and tell your story about your topic and then I go f- second. So I have some sort of context. So are, are you okay going first this week? I am okay. I feel like we're betraying our listeners a little bit who well, have definitely dedicated a lot of time to keeping track of who's going first and who's going second. Um, but I will go first. You know what I said, though, in the beginning of this episode? Keep them on their toes. You're right. You're so, right. We're just trying to make sure you all don't become complacent, maybe. So maybe we should have kept it a secret yeah. and then waited for people to, to see if you're paying attention. It's a pop quiz. So yes, I I can go first this week. Thank you. You're really welcome. I'm making a sacrifice. But I'm excited because I don't know why I'm, I don't know why we're making this drastic and life-changing switch so i'm excited but i am going to be talking about drum roll please Ooh, i expected tabs okay i'm going to be talking about sappho uh, exclamation point Woo! the ancient poet a lasting queer icon and an eternal symbol for lesbian desire which you know a triple threat baby we got a whole thing So sources that I use for this episode include Making Queer History article entitled Sappho, the Poetess, uh, Celebrating Sappho by Summer Kurtz for Medium. I also read a New Yorker article for kind of this fresh perspective on on the story. Aside from like the specifically queer publications I typically find my information from, but I didn't really use it that much because it felt Mm. icky and I didn't like what it was saying. But anyway, I'm going to include it in case some of the summary ends up in my story. I really don't Mm. think it does. Or in case you want to check it out yourselves to get a differing opinion. It was called How Gay Was Sappho? question mark by The Mm. New Yorker. So if you want to see some of the alternative perspectives I talk about in the story, that's there, but I didn't love it. And then finally, fighting lesbian erasure in historiography, restoring Sappho as a queer identity by Amber Berry for the Manchester Historian. Okay. So to start, maybe I gave some things away in my description of our sources, but to kind of start and maybe clarify some of those things, biographical accounts and stories of Sappho may not always be reliable because we don't really have a trustworthy narrator in this sense. Stories of Sappho's life, her poetry experiences are often told as if they are firsthand accounts. So it can feel like they were people who knew her or they were like lasting relics from, you know, the time that she was alive. When in reality, most biographical accounts about her were written hundreds of years after her death. So like not to be siren, siren, controversial, like Mm -hmm. kind of similar to the way we think about the Bible. Like if you think about the way the Bible's written, it was really written hundreds of years after the events were supposed to take place, but it's written as if, you know, they're happening in the present or the people writing witnessed them. So it's kind of similar in that, the narrators of the stories may not always be a reliable source of information. They're not firsthand accounts. Mm. Or 
they're based on individuals' interpretations and sometimes misrepresentations of Sappho's written work. So it's people kind of like taking what is reflected as an autobiographical account and being like, this is what I think it means. So all that to say, some people, like there's a lot of just differing opinions out there, but we're kind of going to focus on what I think is a very, very strong case for her queer identity and her queerness. But if you are interested in what some other folks have to say, that information's out there. Just kind of take it with a grain of salt, knowing that it's mostly interpretation. Give us the Rachel Craig. I will. I'm going to give you the, the Rachel Craig story. Yeah, please. So some some people, such as Plato, regard her as one of the great muses. In fact, a forgotten 10th muse, like Plato's like, she, we need to regard Sappho as another muse. She was an artist herself and just an inspiration to other artists. Other retellings include her as just kind of like the butt of the joke. Or like also there are things that describe her as like the face of all ancient Greek sluts. And it's like, okay, fun. She is many a thing. Screaming misogyny at me, like with no evidence. I love it. Wow. So again, just like bearing all of those things in mind. But I'm going to try my best to create a well-rounded picture of who she could have been, who I want her to be, and who many people (laughs) regard her as. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And this is based off of, I'm not creating this entirely. This is all fiction. In my own head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not a real story. This is my listener's story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one story that often seems credible because it pops up quite often involves a supposed husband of Sappho's. And now I'm saying supposed because I did mention that I wanted to focus on her queer identity. And also a lot of evidence points to the fact that people often included stories of a male lover and partner for Sappho in an attempt to redirect from the other stories of her relationships with women. So these cover-ups were and continue to be especially dumb, specifically the one about her husband. First, because having a husband or male lover wouldn't change her sexuality if she was also attracted to and or had relationships with women. Mm -hmm. And also, and this is the part that makes me laugh every time her supposed husband's name was Kirkilas 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 regardless of the pronunciation the translation is penis from men's island okay (laughs) so it's just like a little it's just like a little too on the nose if we're expected to believe that like this is definitely a real person it was like quick. this was definitely a real person pick a name (laughs) just get a man's name something about a man name a penis right penis guy the guy from the island with penis right right penis from man's island that's it that's a normal that's normal (laughs) that's like like he's he's totally a real guy he just goes to a different school don't worry about it he's very you don't know him So that's kind of why, you know, there are multiple differing accounts, but some offer more credibility than others. And like, I'm sorry, Kirkulis, Mm -hmm. if you're a real person and you're turning in your grave right now, but I, but you have, I'm sorry you got stuck with that name then, really, because it just, yeah. So if, if you were a real person, if you, you currently are a real person and that's your name, shout out. Thanks for listening. Yeah, please tell us how that's going. You know, in the context of this story, it seems like maybe that was a fake person. (laughs) Yeah, does not seem real. And you know, this all comes from the fact that people wanted to redirect because as a poet, she was often writing about 
you know, erotic desire, female erotic desire, you know, between women and romantic love stories between women and things like that. So that's why it was like, wait, no, that can't be true. That's just silly, fun writings because she has this husband. And this this was not uncommon to redirect from her sexuality and to kind of change up interpretations of her writing or like negate her as sort of being sexual at all. However, Sappho has made a lasting impact in queer culture throughout the years, despite these efforts to remove any hint of her having relationships with women. Intellectual scholars and historians wanted to celebrate her writing because she's a fantastic poet. Like if you like Mm -hmm. poetry, she's a really fantastic poet. But then also because her writing was so explicitly tied to romantic love between women, all of these historians and and scholars and like intellectuals who were focused on writing had to create these new narratives and quote unquote vindicate her from these sins and what they considered moral failings so they could still acknowledge you know the beauty of her work but then also be like yeah but it's just fiction like it's just made up it's really good but like don't take any of this to heart she doesn't mean it why would she be writing fiction about like lesbians though like that that I don't it doesn't know. add up the, the it's something's not connecting <laughs> the reason my story is a little shorter this week is that exact reason as i was reading more and more i was like this just keeps saying the same things of like there's multiple differing accounts and sure. they don't make any sense so like i could go on and on and on and include yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of the things that people were saying to it's kind of nonsense. counter but it doesn't make it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. And so that's why I think the more believable and accurate narrative is just like she was romantically sexually attracted to women and wrote about sure. that. Sure. Um just like I don't know. I feel like that's no fine. Husband. That's just that's yeah. right. She doesn't need a Right. Husband. Like that could that could be the whole story. Sappho is lasting impact on the queer community because she was a monumental poet who wrote about lesbian right. love. Period. Period. And like end of and, story. Right. Close the book. But yet here we are. So ironically though, even without concrete evidence, you know, we've talked about this in the past. There's never going to be evidence of unless someone had a medieval sex tape, there's never going to be evidence <laughs> of like this was true this was not true and it also right stop looking for evidence but there's not going to be it so even without concrete evidence that her queerness existed Sappho has become almost the face like the original sort of the mother of lesbianism Mm -hmm. just the name itself like similar to our first episode and Jared you're gonna have to like remind me the exact phrase but like do you know Marie Antoinette what was the phrase have you heard the rumors about Marie Antoinette right so sort of something similar to that of almost coded but it Mm -hmm. even the name Sappho like rings bells of queerness it has an immediate association yeah and though people tried definitely tried throughout the years the story of Sappho was not going to be erased or otherwise obscured So in the 300s BC, 300s BC, that's not how you'd say that, but I'm choosing to. Okay. There was an ever increasing wave of Christianity, like strict Christianity, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of like just taking over. Okay. And even at times when Sappho's work was threatened by its quote, immorality as viewed by, you know, this ever present wave of Christians, people protected it from being destroyed by intentionally censoring some of the material that related to sexuality. And we've seen this, this has been a recurring theme. 
And so this time of preservation of her materials, her poems, her other writings, and what's regarded as her biographical information too, was successful for some time. So like the censoring worked for a little bit, but like a lot of precious and irreplaceable information from the time, many volumes of her work were lost when the Library of Alexandria was destroyed. So the destruction happened so that all that was left was sort of like a telephone game of oral recollections of her life and many of her works, um, which is probably why there's a lot of differing info out there, why it leaves so much up for interpretation and Mm -hmm. misrepresentation. There was only one work left remaining in its entirety, a poem called An Ode to Aphrodite. This and the remaining sort of pieces of poetry of hers are mainly regarded as autobiographical, which is where details of her sexuality come most to light. So this is where people get the concept from of her loving and having relationships with other women from her poetry. It's regarded as her telling her story about her life. Mm -hmm. So from that, what we know is most probable is that Sappho lived on the Grecian island of Lesbos in the early 7th century. She wrote about her relationships with women openly. I'm saying her relationships with women, but she wrote about having relationships with women openly in her poetry. And as we talked about in a previous episode, at this time, same-sex relationships were far less stigmatized and in fact were pretty common at this time in Greece. What wouldn't really be maybe abnormal or I should say notable. It wasn't, it wouldn't be like a high profile figure. Oh my gosh, they've come out. Right. So we talked about that with the sacred band of Thebes and that was all men. Do you know if, so is it the same for women, this sort of like same sex relationship? Do you know? I think when I was reading for Thebes, it was talking about how there was kind of a status or privilege associated to same sex relationships between men. And I don't think it was the same for women. Although I think it was still less stigmatized. I think the other thing to keep in mind, and we've also talked about this quite a few times, is I don't know that people not necessarily understood. I don't know if it was like a disregard, a not understanding, or like not considering sexual relationships to with Be- between, between women, women to be sexual right like to be having sex right. and you know there i think is probably that aspect of it too of it was less stigmatized all around although you know relationships between men were held in a higher regard lended an element of privilege whereas mm-hmm. i don't know if people were just like Okay, don't mind. But I also don't fully understand how two women can have a sexual relationship. Well, I think that's that's one of the big things is like, especially as we travel into the 19th and 20th centuries, they're kind of like, well, the only way that a woman can have sex is by penetration. So two women having sex is not, it, it like cannot happen. So to them, these like relationships, as you know, alluding to our the title of our podcast, they were just like, really good friends they were just like gal pals because the concept of two women having sex just did not exist to people so i guess it could be in a similar way of either ignoring it or just like truly overlooking it because it's not something that was even on their radar right it's like it couldn't be physically possible so like they must just be really close in other ways right so it's like why would they obviously we right obviously as our knowledge acceptance just like general 
attitudes have changed mm-hmm. i think we learn that that's clearly not, not the true. case right. but you know and i i'm by no means know if that's mm-hmm. an accurate right you know oh, assessment right, right, right. of what was going on that's my speculation based on like like you were saying jared all of the different time periods we've talked about that kind of seems mm-hmm. to be a trend so if anybody has more information on that maybe that yeah. would be like a specific focus i know one of my friends said she did her like senior thesis on the politics of penetration. So maybe Ooh. there's like a whole podcast episode to be had about that. Oh yeah. So all that to say, these relationships were fairly common. And so at the time, there was no reason for her to conceal maybe her queerness in her poetry. That's why, again, it lends itself more to being her poetry was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Her relationships and life on this island were so notable that they helped to name lesbians. So she's from the island of Lesbos. So we can see that kind of in the origins of the name. And, you know, like we have this island of Lesbos. We have this fake husband with the name Penis mm-hmm. from Men's Island. Mm-hmm. How are we still with dignity arguing that Sappho was not a queer figure? And like this impact, like her impact. She kind of changed. A lesbian used to have a previous definition. It didn't always mean what we regard it as today. And so that kind of changed based on this. And also sapphic, which some people may know that word, some people may not. But it's kind of a coded word, but also is used fairly often to describe romantic love between two women and has direct ties to Sappho. Mm -hmm. And so like... Definitely can keep being skeptical. I love and encourage the skepticism, but realize that we are often more inclined to believe other skeptics, other secondhand accounts, or these interpretations rather than just like believe the words that the woman herself wrote down on paper. Like she was writing these things. Right. But our first instinct is to like keep the controversy of alive. Like was she queer or not rather than like preserve just the story for what it was. It's the same thing as James Dean. James Dean was like, no, I'm bi. And people are like, but are you? It's like, so what, yeah, are, yeah. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> like, just listen. Just like, like, look at, look in front of you. Right. As I was reading this, you know, I caught, I caught myself even doing that. Cause I was like, oh, I have to, like I said, I was like, I have, I want to read other perspectives and mm-hmm. I, and I, I find that valuable. And I want you all to know that we sure. do that right. for sure. Right. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but she wrote it down. Like <laughs> she's saying it and we're still like, yeah, but what if? Right. And so that's just what I find so interesting that we're really always searching for these things not to be true rather than just like honoring them for the joyful accounts that they were and like let that be it. It wouldn't be as interesting if we could just accept things and move on. Right. And again, going back to the idea behind the podcast too of if we accept that the truth is just what it is, it demonstrates that you know, queerness existed and was accepted Mm -hmm. and was not sinful, was not a curse long before we were willing to accept that reality. And Mm -hmm. some people just like can't live in that world. Yeah. So I think that plays a part too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, though many listeners may know the story of Sappho, I think she's an important queer person to talk about on this history podcast because it may not come as a shock or like a new fact for many people, like some of our other subjects have, but it does keep with the tradition of keeping her story alive and not letting it be erased as history continues on. 
I wanted to do this because many, many other people have put in a lot of work to preserve her sexuality in history. And I kind of wanted to as well. I wanted to offer another platform for that. Just because, you know, as people continue to preserve her identity, people also continue to try and and change it for all the reasons we've been talking about. And it's like also, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, but it's fascinating to me that it wasn't until after her death that people had to fight to preserve her work and her identity. And so I know our friends over at Spoiler Alert, It's Gay, the podcast, talked about this as well in their last episode, that reading through different historical contexts sheds light on this sort of like yo-yoing that queerness has gone through as it's socially accepted and then demonized and then its culture is co-opted and then it's seen as sinful and this kind of back and forth. And I think we can learn from the openness and acceptance contained within Sappho's writing for whatever it means for you. And though there has almost always been an earnest effort to erase Sappho's sexuality and queer writing, there has always been an equally matched passion to preserve those same things and remind people that queerness is literally ancient. So in closing, I wanted to take one of Sappho's poems that features the line, which likely would have been said to a female lover, quote, someone will remember us, I say, even in a different time, unquote. So there you go. That's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. I think it is sweet and it's true. Like she yeah. knew it at the time. She's like, I am an icon. Absolutely. I'm an icon. I mean, we don't even have to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we're in 2022. We are living in the literal future and we're still talking about her and discussing her sexuality and her lovers and just her as an icon. That's great. That's a great topic. Great job. Great story. I loved hearing about it. Thank you. Now, take me into... Our switch up, take me into why now we're we're following up. I'm so I'm so anxious. All right, let's get right into it. Okay. Okay, so as I was searching for a topic to cover this week, I do this thing where I look over our topic list and I just like scroll up and down and I'm like okay just pick one just pick someone just literally pick anybody and I never can because I want to make sure that I'm picking like the right person and you know it's pride month and I want to do just whatever and then I saw that you were doing Sappho and I was like Mm -hmm. okay how can I how can I relate to Sappho can I find someone that's like very similar to her like in the same vein as Sappho like maybe I'll do the complete opposite and I was searching and I came upon my subject today who is a poet as well and an activist, Mm -hmm. and her name is Lesbia Harford. And just from the name alone, it it was like, oh, this woman has to be sapphic. This woman has to, there's like something about her that I was like, oh my God, I need to know more about her. And the more that I read about her, the more I was like, oh my God, she is like the second Sappho. And so I, I was like, there's no way that I can't cover her in the same episode that we are talking about Sappho. So today I'm going to be talking to you about poet and activist Lesbia Harford. Woo! I love it. So the sources that I used are the Australian Dictionary of Biography entry for Lesbia Harford by Leslie Lamb, the Queer as Fact podcast episode on Lesbia Harford. They did a really, really great job, a really in-depth episode, and Irene, who is one of the three hosts, uh, did an immense amount of research on lesbia and i 
am taking a lot of that research for my own and just kind of regurgitating <laughs> it. So thank you, Irene. I really, really appreciate thank you. that. <laughs> the Making Queer History podcast article on Lesbia Harford, we love them over on mm-hmm. Start Be Really Good Friends. Yes, thank you. <laughs> the Poem Hunter Lesbia Harford biography and Lesbia's Wikipedia page. And so when I first found out about Lesbia and I saw her name, I did like a quick Google search just to be like, who is this woman? And <laughs> I wrote Lesbia Ford because I didn't realize her last name was Harford. And okay. um, about 38 billion sources in about 0.6 seconds showed up on Google and it was all lesbian porn. Oh. So it, yeah, it was like, <laughs> I, I, it was. So search with, search with caution or search with excitement, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Just search, just like have the context if you're searching. <laughs> the power of Google is real. It is. Yeah. yeah. So it was. Um, that's so quick. And that's such a small difference. Yeah, it was letters, like literally three, oh letter, my gosh. three letters, maybe. Yeah. So search <laughs> with caution for sure. Okay. Let's just get into her. So, oh, no. Let's just get into the subject. <laughs> <laughs> distracted. Yeah. Distracted. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Talk about lesbian porn. <laughs> Lesbia Venner Keogh, later Harford, is born on April 9th, 1891 in Brighton, Melbourne. So we're in like the southeast of Australia. It's like where Florida would be if Australia was the U.S. Does that make sense? I, it makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I know that we have people not listening from the U.S., but Florida's pretty identifiable state. Uh-huh. I've just never heard geography described in that way I know. And I, such an ignorant like american it. move and i'm sorry to the australians <laughs> listening to us because i know there are some but it is like the florida placement of, of so australia it's, like, it's the southeast yeah, of like australia on the bottom yeah okay okay yeah got it is wait sorry is it a peninsula um what i i don't i don't know can there be a peninsula on an island i don't know Okay. All right. Doesn't matter. Sorry. Got too caught up in it. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) The name Lesbia was the literary pseudonym used by a Greek poet, Catalyst, to refer to his lover. So potentially our Lesbia's parents liked this Greek poet or like Greek poetry. I am not 100% sure where they get this name from, but like I can't find really any other instances of the name Lesbia used in history. But they liked it enough that they like, this is what they had to name their firstborn child. And so just to like put us in the time period, the 1880s. So the decade before Lesbia is born are considered boom years for Australia. Overseas capital pours into the country. And a lot of that money goes into the investment of pastoral industries, meaning the buying and selling of land, but rolling right into the 1890s, these boom years of the 1880s burst causing a great depression Overseas investments dry up, banks fail, and unemployment soars. The price of wool falls, which at the time wool makes up around like half of Australia's exports. And by 1893, a third of all breadwinners are unemployed. Relief societies are set up to distribute aid to poverty-stricken families. Like the decade that Lesbia is born into is just like crumbling around her. Mm -hmm. And worst of all, Melbourne is one of the most affected cities by this Great Depression. So it's a bad time, not a great area to be like being born into. Right. But Lesbia is born. (laughs) She's the daughter of Edmund Joseph and Helen Beatrice Keogh. 
Edmund is purportedly a well-to-do financial slash real estate agent and business owner. So like sort of a rough industry to be in during a Great Depression (laughs) that affects the property sector so much. And Lesbia is the first of four children. So she has two brothers and one sister. So there's Esmond, Estelle, and then a fourth child whose birth name is unknown, but they call him Jelly, according to the hosts of the Queerest Fact podcast. Okay. I'd love to know more about that, but I guess that's not our focus of today. But um, it will be in my brain for a while. That's going to create a little brain worm that'll just weasel in there. Lesbia and Jelly. I'm like, where, what were we doing? And the first and last child. Yeah, we maybe just have to like start with a surprise and end and, with a bang, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, Start strong, finish strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Lesbia is born with a congenital heart defect, although some sources state that she had a serious attack of rheumatism as a baby, which damages her heart. But either way, she has this like delicate little heart, which kind of affects her health for the rest of her life. And because of this, her lips are often like a bit blue. Mm -hmm. Her heart really restricts her activity and her mobility and causes her to tire incredibly easily. A writer named Nettie Palmer recalls Lesbia at a children's party as, quote, a dark-eyed little girl who sat quite still looking on, end quote. So it seems that, like, with her heart condition and also maybe more of a shy demeanor, she's not really the life of the literal party. She's quite quiet and considered a solitary child, although this is likely due to her heart condition. Mm -hmm. But before I get ahead of myself, so as we know, the 1890s suck. Families are hit really hard, correct? especially those in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and the Keogh family is no exception. Mm-hmm. Edmund Joseph, Lesbia's father, leaves the family around 1900 to either work in gold fields for money to send back to the family, or he leaves to retrieve family fortunes in Western Australia. But in the end, either way, he just straight up leaves and never returns. He's just gone. Okay. Rumor has it that he stays on the West Coast and takes up farming, But he basically leaves his young family to just, like, fend for themselves. And this event is something that Lesbia will consider to have an immense impact on her life. The absence of her father gives her a sense of independence, and watching her single mother struggle to raise four children really opens her eyes to the classism and sexism around her at, like, a really young age. That makes sense. That feels um, congruent with, yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. all the happenings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, Lesbia's mother, Helen, opens a boarding house. She takes really menial jobs and sometimes even begs Keogh relations for financial help, all just to put her children through school. So her mom is like doing everything she can. And Lesbia is educated at two separate Catholic schools slash like convents, which is how some sources label them. Mm -hmm. But she's actually quite opposed to her family's staunch Catholicism. Okay. And around 1910, Lesbia begins dabbling in writing verse, which her mother finds really beautiful. So it does seem like her mother is truly a fan of poetry. So maybe that is, Mm -hmm. you know, where she gets the name. But I couldn't find much information about any surviving poems from this period of her life. It seems she continues writing through her adolescence and into her adulthood, though. Other than all of this, her childhood is pretty much undocumented. So she graduates high school, I assume, because in 1912, Lesbia enrolls in the law program at the University of Melbourne. 
She's one of the university's only female students, and she pays her tuition by coaching slash tutoring or taking art classes in schools. She's also forced to work through holidays and weekends just to maintain her studies, so she's working incredibly hard compared to the other male students around her. During her time at uni, she becomes involved closely in the anti-war and anti-conscription movements, as we're now kind of at the start of and in the midst of World War I. Sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah, please. What's conscription? Conscription is enrollment in the army. Like, like we have the draft. It's like a forced enrollment, basically. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so she's like, why are we forcing people to sign up for the war, basically? That Doesn't makes make sense. sense. That- Still agreed. Good on you, lesbian. In 1915, in a defiant move to her Catholic upbringing, she conducts services for the socialist Unitarian minister Frederick Sinclair's fellowship group, which is quite progressive, radical, and nonconforming in their beliefs, mixing religion with social, political, and cultural interests. She increasingly attends lectures and joins student political societies, which all leads to her really strong, like, quote-unquote, radical political ideologies. Lesbia is heavily engaged with women's liberation, workers' rights, free thought, and something called free love, which we now call polyamory. Okay. So she's, like, just really into, like, liberation and people doing what they want, which at the time people are like, whoa, that's really, that's really radical. Right. Why, what are you, right. what are you doing? Right, it's like general self-determination for, like, I know what's best for me and I'm going to, like, achieve that goal for myself or my relationships radical too progressive shut it down especially as a woman they're like what are you sure you sure about doing that yeah they're like um i think you should be i think you should be quiet you kind of sound like a little bit of a whore and we don't want to hear it anymore thank you next (laughs) all of this seems to really bring lesbia out of her shell She goes from this like wilting wallflower type to this incredibly involved and well-known and respected young woman, student, and activist. Many of her male cohorts describe her as very warm and romantic, but admire her for her work ethic as well. She speaks against Australia's involvement in World War I and their compulsory enlistment services conscription until her heart is exhausted and her throat lands her in the hospital. Like, this is the type of work that she's doing. She is, like, physically exhausting herself for the cause. And she actually convinces a nurse, and I'm not 100% sure if it's this hospital visit or maybe, like, another one down the line, but she convinces a nurse to help her sneak out of the hospital so that she can continue doing her work, which is, like, pretty badass. Yeah, she's like, I don't need to be here again. Like, I know it's best for me. Thanks. Let me go. Even though, like, it sounds like she's she's figuratively, but also not, like, burning herself out. Like, she, like, her heart is just sort of unable to keep up at this point and she's like no i can go thanks i'd like to check myself out thank you (laughs) she like signs herself (laughs) out she wheels herself out in a wheelchair yeah (laughs) (laughs) so this is all like while she's at melbourne university early 20s also sprinkled throughout all this like activism and political engagement lesbia heart condition and working overtime and all still has time for romance so she has a few prominent flings overlapping you know because of free love but one Mm -hmm. of these romantic interests is a philosophy tutor at melbourne university called katie lush oh that's a name too katie lush Katie lush 
it just like sounds Ooh. like the romantic interest in a movie. Yeah, and like how could you not be seduced by Katie Lush? I hate you know? Lush. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And uh, it's frustrating, kind of like with your story, as with many of these historical stories, actually, because I can't actually tell you a lot about Katie Lush other than that her name mm-hmm. is, you know, seductive. <laughs> not much exists about this philosophy tutor, except for the poems that Lesbia writes during this period that name drops Katie directly. Okay. And it seems like there were letters between the two women at one point existing kind of out in the world. But like a lot of Lesbia's possessions after her death, they've been lost. Like we just don't know where they are. But Lesbia's poetry, semi in contrast with her political work, has a lot to do with her love and relationships. And the Queer as Fact episode about Lesbia incorporates a lot more of her actual poetry than my time in this episode allows for. But one of the poems that they read as proof of Lesbia's involvement with Katie goes, quote, Why does she put me to many indignities? Shifts to prevent myself thinking upon her. My golden Katie, who loveth not kisses? I wear my new dresses and put on silk stockings, all to prevent myself thinking upon her, who is more lovely than fair river lilies, end quote. Other poems written about Katie talk about how much Lesbia wants to kiss her and what it would mean to her if she could. She even quite literally evokes the name of Sappho in her attempts to describe the way she feels about Katie. Yes, name dropping. And also, what a long lost art. We've said it time and time again. But, oh my gosh, people just, the kids these days, man, it's just not the same. They don't write love poetry like they used to. No, they just don't. According to Lesbia's brother, Esmond, the women don't have an overt relationship, likely meaning like public, but one that was nonetheless very intense. And that's kind of all we know about their relationship. They remain friends throughout the rest of Lesbia's life, but right. we have some poems, but that's that's kind of it. They have a nice fling okay, in yeah. college. Cool. Love that. Little summer love. Good for you. Oh my god, um, Sandy was Australian. Yes, she was. Can you do an Summer Australian loving. accent? Nope, and I truly will no. not try to offend. Oh, oh. No. <laughs> I don't know if that's it. It's <laughs> not. Okay. It's just the TikTok, so we can't oh, do an okay. Australian accent, so I won't try no. to read the poem in that. Love it. All right. No, please don't. Wow. <laughs> so, graduating from Melbourne University in 1916, Lesbia doesn't pursue a career in law. This might be because she's one of the first women from the university to hold a law degree, so there probably aren't a lot of jobs just, like, waiting for her. Like, we need lesbia. Like, please work in our law office. Like, they're just not. We've been waiting for your graduation eagerly. Right, Right. like, women in law. Like, it's just not, (laughs) that's not what's happening. So instead, lesbia chooses what she considers to be a life of greater social purpose and gets a job working in a clothing factory. This allows her to gain firsthand knowledge of the conditions under which women are working, which can't have been good, and furthers her interest in political unions and activism. Much of Lesbia's poetry belongs to this period of her life, and her work presents a growing solidarity with her fellow workers and antagonism against those she sees as exploiters. And despite her chronic illness that makes the labor in the factory incredibly difficult, Lesbia consistently speaks fondly of her time there. As she falls more in love with the women she works with, the more strongly she advocates for their rights. 
She first petitions the Clothing Workers Union for female representatives and equal pay, and then actually becomes the vice president of the union for a short time. Wow. So she's, like, making moves, making changes. Like, it started in college, but up until now, she's just like, here we go, politics. Like, you've been waiting for me. This is what's happening. Let's fucking do it. Right. Here I am. I've upgraded from infographics. I am here. Right. Here we go. <laughs> here, here we go. We're doing it. We're like, we're boots on the ground. We're like unionizing. And I'm going to, yeah. you know what? I'm going to lead the union. Thank you very yeah. much. You better watch out for lesbia. Right. Right. Some of the poems during this time are penned offensively toward the wealthy female buyers of the products she and other workers create. So in one, she writes, quote, all day long, we sew fine muslin for you to wear. Muslin that women wove for you elsewhere a million strong. Just like flames, insatiable, you eat up all our hours and sun and loves and talk and flowers, suburban dames, end quote. I love that. Also, lesbia sounds maybe like a little bit of a communist. Um, oh. But I mean, I can't. Oh, we'll get into that. Just wait. Just, yeah. Okay. Well, I love that poem also. I want like a little cross stitch of that. Oh, that's so funny. In queer, the Queerest Fact podcast, they talk about making cross-stitch lesbia quotes. So maybe we should jump on the train I love and that. do it too. I think we should. I also maybe feel a little bad because I definitely have like clothes in my closet from like Shein right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh-huh. know. I know. Uh-huh. You gave me a look and it it, hit, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. So maybe I shouldn't cross-stitch that. Um, lesbia would be a bit disappointed in you. Yeah, I am a bit disappointed in me, lesbia, so your impact is truly um, long-lasting. Other times, more frequently, lesbia writes about everyday life, hoping to reach people through the depictions and celebration of life as it truly is. So she writes about menstruation and other intimate aspects of women's lives, such as passions and disappointments. She's like, this is who we are. This is what being a woman is like. Like, we're not who you talk about. We're not how you describe, like, I'm telling you right now, this is what the modern day woman is. And this is like what we want, what we don't want. Like fucking listen. Honestly, amazing. And that's super progressive genuinely because even today, 2022, like some commercials for like menstrual products, literally when they like show how absorbent they are, they pour like clear or blue liquid on them because they're like, Mm -hmm. we all know what we're talking about, but maybe periods are blue and it's a fun little mystery. (laughs) So this is, so we're a hundred years later. And so, you know, a hundred years before she's like, this is what it is. (laughs) Like, listen to me, like, this is what's going on. Right. So it's, it's a very progressive idea, I think, to be so open about, you know, not only love and intimacy, but just like female anatomy. In general. Yeah. Her time working at the factory and being a member of the Clothing Workers Union leads Lesbia to join the Industrial Workers of the World Organization. And some reports state that this is where Lesbia meets and campaigns alongside writer Guido Baraki, a member of the Australian Communist Party, while others say that they met while at Melbourne University. So Guido is an Italian-Australian born in 1887, so he's four years older than Lesbia, and he goes to Melbourne Uni but he never finishes his degree. He'll go on to be a pretty prominent leftist slash liberal activist. And he has kind of a wild journey with communism. So he joins the Australian Communist Party, but then is expelled from it and then later rejoins and then quits again. And so he has kind of like this like on and off relationship with it, (laughs) but he's very vocal in his political beliefs, which really lends itself to his relationship with Lesbia, who he actually credits with inspiring his commitment to left-wing politics. 
Wow. Okay. And a funny little anecdote just to tell you a bit more about Guido's personality. So Guido is really inspired by Lesbia's factory work job. And so he decides that he too will work in a factory and be like one of the working class. But he lasts a week. So the girl with the heart defect can do it and sustain it, but he can't, which is just interesting. It is. It's interesting to be like, wow, you've inspired me, but you keep at it because I don't want to. Right. I'm super into activism, but like, don't ask me to like do it. Don't. Please. I can't Thank physically you. participate in the same way that you no. can, lesbian. Yes. Yes. Thanks, though. Thanks for your inspiration. But their relationship seems to be like a really solid relationship. Everything goes well between them. They exchange and discuss anti-capitalistic books and passages, which feels very romantic and also very productive. At some point, Guido gets arrested for protesting, and it's either serve jail time or pay, like, a fine, and Lesbia convinces him to take the jail time because it'll look more serious and dedicated to the cause. So he goes to jail, <laughs> like, because of her and for her. And so it feels to me like, this is a pretty serious relationship. Like, he seems very into her and what she stands for. Mm -hmm. Like, he is under Lesbia's spell. Yeah, definitely. He's, like, very... He's more dedicated to her than the cause, but she's sort of using that in a way to say, well, if you want me, you get the cause too. So let's right. kind of take that dedication a step further. Right, which really does kind of like last through the end of his life. Like he really, wow. it's applied to him and then he kind of sticks with that through the rest of his life. Right. And it's reported that Lesbia would also sing her poetry to Guido very much like Sappho's poetry was meant to be recited to music. So the romance is very abundant between these two. Mm -hmm. In 1918, around the age of 27, Lesbia and Guido moved to Sydney to campaign for the release of the Sydney 12, which are 12 members of the Industrial Workers of the World, aka the Wobblies, who were arrested and charged with treason, arson, sedition, and forgery. Mm. There's a lot of things. Yeah. And here she like really throws herself into campaigning and the people around her are beginning to worry about her health and how much she's giving to the cause. And they're like, maybe you should take a break or do less. And she's like, no, fuck you. So on top of campaigning, she also takes up work at a clothing factory as a housemaid or as a university coach, which I'm not sure what that means. It's definitely not a sports coach. Like right. it's, she's not like coaching soccer i think it has something to do with like business or education hmm. so if you are australian which i know we have australians listening to us please tell me what a university Let coach is right in i would love to know right right in so i'll never do my australian accent again i would imagine and i hope somebody corrects us university coach maybe it's like a like an ra type thing like yeah. um because the only reason I'm saying that is if the options were, what did you say, housemaid or well, it's not, not necessarily options. It's she does work oh, okay. at a clothing factory. She works as a housemaid and I should have said and a university oh, coach. and something else. Okay, okay. She's okay. doing a lot. I was like, like, I don't understand how those things could be related, but okay, that makes more sense than sorry. Yeah, so people <laughs> are like, we're worried about your health. And she's like, well, I'm actually going to do four more things, three more things. I'm going to do right. four things well, total, like, so don't tell me what to do. So I don't have time to worry about my health, actually, so don't worry. You don't worry about it. It's right. okay. I'm not even like focused on that. I have so many other things to be worried about. Right. During this time, 
either at a factory or at a political engagement, Lesbia meets Patrick John O'Flaggerty Thingle Harford, a boot factory worker and a fellow Wobbly. They share an interest in painting and aesthetics, and in 1920, Lesbia and Pat are married, hence the name Lesbia Harford. Despite being all for free love and or, or polyamory, it seems that her relationship with Guido romantically and physically kind of just like fizzles out, although that also isn't fully clear. But the two, kind of like Lesbia and Katie, remain really close friends for the rest of Lesbia's life. Mm-hmm. And it, it may be that they're lovers too, intermittently, you know, because of free love. But again, there's right. just nothing really documented about it. Pat, her new husband... However, is disliked by Lesbia's family, though, because he's kind of a lackluster man of no worth who's also an alcoholic and sometimes abusive towards Lesbia. Okay. He's a soldier who returned home from the war with a limp and has PTSD, which at the time they call shell shock, which could be a cause for the start of his drinking and, you know, abusive behavior. But we don't condone abusive alcoholics on this podcast, so it like truly does not matter. Yeah, sorry, like, you can have your own trauma, likely many of us do, but I know there probably weren't the same resources, but, like... You don't get a pass for being an asshole. Yeah, and so at first I was going to say that their, her family's concern felt aggressive, but then it no, feels... Right. The concern feels justified. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But... Lesbia knows and recognizes his less than desirable behavior, but there's also something of worth that she really sees in Pat. In one poem, she writes, quote, Pat wasn't Pat last night at all. He was the rain, the spring, young Dionysus, white and warm, lilac and everything, end quote. So there's like something about him that keeps her there and keeps her in the situation. Lesbia's ill health and the quote-unquote cost of keeping a husband, whatever the fuck that means, (laughs) causes her to slowly back away from her factory and activist work, and instead she begins doing more white-collar jobs like teaching, research, and clerical work. In the early 1920s, the couple actually moves back to Lesbia's mother's boarding house in Melbourne, where Pat works for a post-impressionist painter and becomes more of a serious painter himself in the modernism and cubism movements. Lesbia and Pat collaboratively write poetry together. In one of her many journals, she has a section titled Pat's Poems, so she's really active in her writing around this time, and despite the periods of awfulness of this marriage, Lesbia and Pat really seem to live this, like, kind of artist lifestyle, like, bouncing off one another, really getting their, like, artistic creative energies from each other. This feels, um... I know we talked about Sappho being amused, but your description also feels very much like one Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that they're they're kind of influencing one another. Oftentimes they may not have the healthiest of relationships. Um, 100%. And there could definitely be some power and control dynamics involved mm-hmm. in there. But, you know, I think part of the creativity, part of the muse and part of the inspiration sort of keeps that relationship yeah. fueled in a way of like, but they keep my work going. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pain is used to then further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Around 1921, Lesbia submits a bunch of her poetry to birth a small poetry magazine published in melbourne which accepts her work and prints like a bunch of her poems so she's like finally starting to become a published writer and getting Mm -hmm. you know some sort of recognition amazing 
The marriage between Lesbia and Pat doesn't last very long after this, and the couple is separated, but no documentation shows that they're officially divorced, and this is during kind of the mid-1920s. Okay. Lesbia begins studying for her bar exam, basically to continue with her career in law, now that, you know, times maybe have progressed a little bit over this, like, past decade. Although, she's never able to see this through. She also begins to move away from her poetry and more into prose, where she writes a novel about a young working-class woman whose life is changed by the internment of her family during World War I. So she continues to have this, like, activist lens and, like, mm-hmm. more radical thinking, even after she's done being, like, hands-on in political active work. Right. Around this time, Lesbia's health begins to deteriorate greatly, though the illness is kind of up for debate some say it's tuberculosis and some say that it's lung failure or or her heart failing however she never stops writing but she definitely senses that her life is coming to an end and in her writing she expresses a sadness for the political work she never got to see come to a resolution and then in july of 1927 lesbia passes away at the age of 36 with friend and old lover katie lush watching over her So during Lesbia's life, she keeps journals and journals and journals full of poetry and writings in them. And upon her death, it was once believed that her father got possession of the journals, which were then lost when his shack was destroyed in a fire. However, like this is potentially false. It's like maybe just a myth. We're not really sure. But whether lost in a fire or lost somewhere else, no complete collection of Lesbia's poetry exists. So very similar to Sappho, we have like Mm -hmm. some poems and like bits and pieces, but there's no comprehensive, extensive like catalog of her her poetry. Post-mortem, a lot happens for Lesbia's poetry and kind of for her recognition. And so kind of just like gonna copy and paste the Wikipedia section and do a rundown of the list because there's a good chunk. So in 1927, the same year that she dies, three of her poems are included in a book of poems called An Australasian Anthology, to which the critic H.M. Mm. Green writes, quote, She has written some of the best lyrics among today's, and certainly, I would say, the best love lyrics written out here, end quote. In 1939, Lesbia's mom, Helen, tries to get her daughter's poems and the finished novel to be published. She has some success, but not a lot. In 1941, a small volume of 54 poems called The Poems of Lesbia Harford is published, which quote-unquote reveals a poet of originality and charm. In one of these early publications of Lesbia's poems, anything written about Katie or same-sex relationships is left out and basically swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. But then in 1985, a much larger selection of poems is published with a forward acknowledging some of Lesbia's queer relationships. Lesbia is then published in various poetry anthologies and receives a lot of attention for her work. And finally, in 1987, Lesbia's 190-page novel that she struggled to get published while alive for it being too radical is finally published. And that's kind of the last work outstanding of Lesbia's that she was waiting, you know, to, to bring to the public so finally she has this like right, vindication right. and so Amazing. that is like the hardcore and badass life and journey of one lesbia venner harford or as we might want to start calling her the second sappho yes oh, okay so i know now why we switched 
um, orders for today, and I appreciate that. That was yeah, a really I feel cool like, story. Thank you. I feel like it would have been ruined if then you went after me and talked about yeah. Sappho. <laughs> no, I feel like that was a really cool story, and it was very fitting, and I'm glad you found it, too. Me, too. And also, one thing I noticed as you were kind of summarizing, too, of we saw this in both of our stories today. We saw this with Eleanor Roosevelt. But when people intentionally try to hide pieces of, you know, written work or other experiences, you're kind of telling on yourself a little bit because yeah. it's really hard to say, well, if you just published it and said, well, we don't know what this means. That's different than saying, I'm not going to publish it at all because I know what it means and it makes me uncomfortable. Right. You were like deliberately trying to rewrite what Lesbia wrote, which is such a huge part of why she wrote what she wrote you know, right. for the time that she wrote it, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I'm just so fascinated by this story. I didn't know that much about like Australia at the time. I still don't really know don't much about either. Australia. Sorry. And I I think she just had a really interesting, a really, really interesting life. And it is just so funny the way everything kind of came together for our yeah. two subjects this week. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Oh boy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some sapphic poets. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes having a canonically queer name a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally, and make sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye.